Hey there, podcast listeners. Welcome to Engendered, the show that features stories that explore the systems, practices, and policies that enable gender-based violence and oppression and the solutions to end it. We use gender as a lens to understand power and oppression, teach feminism, and decolonize hearts and minds one story at a time. Engendered is sponsored by Can Do It, spelled K-A-N-D-U-I-T, and I'm your host, Terry Yuan. Our guest today is Professor Spring Cooper, a social researcher with academic expertise in public health, health promotion, and sexuality. Professor Cooper's PhD focused on the sexual health education implications of menstrual attitudes and knowledge amongst women of varying socioeconomic status in the United States. Her current research interests are in adolescent sexual health, adolescent and online and offline social networks, health promotion, health communication, and prevention of diseases through behavior change and vaccination. We will be speaking with Professor Cooper about all of these topics, especially as it relates to the students that she works with at the City University of New York. In addition, we'll be speaking with Professor Cooper about her podcast, The Sex Wrap, the podcast that covers everything you are too afraid to ask at home, too embarrassed to ask at school, or was just too hard to ask a partner. Professor Cooper will also share her thoughts about New York State's revenge porn law, which comes at the heels of New York City's law passed in 2018. Welcome, Dr. Cooper. I want to say welcome, too. Welcome to my office. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for um, speaking with us today. I'd love to start with your background. How did you become interested in the areas of sexual health, health promotion, and health communication? Well... I had a good friend in high school who was HIV positive. She had contracted HIV from a blood transfusion when she was young. And she had experienced a lot of stigma through her life from other students and their parents. And so I felt very strongly that that was unfair of everything that she had been through. And I felt very upset and very kind of motivated to want to help in some way. So when I went to college at Penn State for undergrad, I started volunteering at the local AIDS project and um, got really into uh, helping people reduce their risk and think through strategies for condom negotiation and things like that. And I had so much fun doing it that I thought, I guess this is what I'm going to do for the rest of my life. Wow, very (laughs) impressive. And... uh, In terms of your um, PhD thesis, how did you become interested in that menstruation and the body, female body? Well, I was mostly interested in the first conversations that young people have about sex with their parents. I was always interested in um, sex education and uh, these stigmas and these ideas that are created in our society and how they kind of come about. So this like first introduction to sexuality that people get from their parents was what I really wanted to explore. And for women, that often occurs uh, at the same time as the uh, first period. So when a young woman gets her first period, there's often some sort of sex talk that happens from the parents. And that's like a very common instance. And so I was really interested in kind of um, that time in a woman's life, the 
the first period, specifically monarchy and uh, what kind of happened from there. And so that's that's where the interest in periods sprung from. Is, is mm-hmm. that how you personally learned about it when you first got your period? Or had um, you known about, had you gotten the sex talk before then? I had been sent to a sex ed weekend thing by my parents when I was maybe 10 or 11. It was held at a local church and it was, um, a very open minded, very fact based, um, very great sex ed program. And I remember being terrified because I felt, I felt too young <laughs> and it was, it was aimed at people my age, but I, uh, was like, I am not cured yet. Like <laughs> it seemed very scary to me at the time. Wow. That's very, <laughs> your parents must've been very progressive in the church as they, well. They named me spring. So they, yeah, that's true. <laughs> what, which city was this? Um, my dad was military, so we moved around a lot. So that was, um, in, California, Southern California. Wow. Yeah, I've, I've never heard of a church teaching anything about sex ed. It was like a, a whole weekend. It was, a, it was intense. <laughs> and, and so by the time you, you got your period, you, of course, were prepared in terms of having the factual knowledge. I, I had some understanding. I still was very surprised when I got my period. I think about the logistics of everything. <laughs> but I think that's pretty normal. <laughs> so when you did your PhD thesis, was it difficult to get approval and support for the topic? Um, no. My supervisor um, did a lot of research in sexuality. And um, so she was very practiced and she and I worked closely on all everything that we did there. So um, that was very easy. Dr. Patricia Koch, shout out to uh, my favorite mentor. <laughs> and what about now, now that you're a professor at CUNY School of Public Health, what are your thoughts on the interest and the support for the kinds of research that you do? Well, there's two different very types of support for my research. One is um, kind of a generalized, yeah, that's great. And then there's also monetary support. And so when you're talking about monetary support and finding grants that are available to fund general research about sexuality and maybe something that isn't as directly tied to sexual health, um, it is very difficult. And so finding um, organizations or agencies that will provide funding to that is very difficult. So a lot of times um research is framed in more disease oriented way so that um that's that's how sexuality research exists is <laughs> framing it in terms of how bad a specific STI is or something like that but um but in general I feel very supported in my research and it is always a bit of work to get a study approved by um, the Institutional Review Board, our ethical process, um, just because there are a lot of protections we want in place when doing work with young people and all of my work and research is with people under 25. And so specifically if they're under 18, there are a lot of extra precautions that we put in place and I'm very used to doing that, but every time I send an application to the IRB, um, there's always different people looking at it and different concerns. So there's always a lot of um, work to make sure that everybody agrees that it's ethical and is fully protective of young people. Would you say that part of the 
um, if there is institutional resistance to this kind of research, that it's gender-based? Um, or is there also potentially opposition from religious conservative groups that you know see this as part of the reproductive justice kind of movement and, and want to, you know, quash that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I would say not specifically in my experience in CUNY or um, in any university system really, but in the broader funding system for sure. <laughs> and uh, getting things funded by um, big organizations like the National Institutes for Health is traditionally difficult anyway, but um, the NIH is very tied to um, how they're kind of allowed to spend their money. And um, that goes into what the president decides they're allowed to spend their money on. And so that means that it is very difficult to find money for the type of research I want to do because that's not... um, uh, been set as a priority area. You were involved in the Healthy CUNY initiative. Can you talk about your role and describe for our listeners what that is and its goals? Yeah, Healthy CUNY is a collaboration of several researchers at CUNY School of Public Health. And everyone at the School of Public Health is interested in increasing the health specifically of New Yorkers. We're a very um, urban New York City-based School of Public Health, which makes us very unique. And um, But specifically Healthy CUNY, these are researchers from around our school that are interested in supporting specifically young people's health. And so um, we aim to take the research that we and others are doing and actually put it into practice for the CUNY population. And so that means that any thing that I'm working on that directly relates to sexual health of young people, then I would try to re-implement through Healthy CUNY to try to actually bring healthy changes to CUNY students. And a report came out early last year uh, with some findings around the gaps in health that CUNY students faced. Can you talk about those, please? Yeah, I mean, I think CUNY students are amazing and so resilient. And um, we have the most diverse body of students. And that means that we have people from every type of socioeconomic background, of um, every race and ethnicity and religion and gender and sexual orientation. And the diversity of our student body is really reflective of the diversity of New York and New York City, I mean. And um, so we have this like cross-cut, like amazing group of people. And they're all you know, from all these different backgrounds, working really hard to uh, get an education and to um, further their selves and further their potential in their lives. And when people come specifically from very low SES backgrounds with not a lot of support for education, maybe, it can be very difficult to be challenging those norms and the places they come from and the families they come from to uh, get higher education. And so we do have um, a lot of 
I think health concerns for our students and um, specifically even housing stability and uh, access to regular regular food security. And that is something that we don't see kind of in the general college population. Like if you were doing research with a typical four-year sleepaway college. So we do have these needs that our students, like, are very real needs that have to be met so that they can continue to get an education. And um, we've also seen one of my colleagues here, Professor Sui, did some research about looking at the gender-based violence that can actually occur as a result of furthering someone's education. So specifically, some women that were going to CUNY schools felt that that actually increased the uh, violence they were receiving from a partner because they were trying to lift themselves kind of out of their situation by education, and that was not okay with their partners. And so we know that there are very real issues that our students face, and we have that through that Healthy CUNY report, through um, a lot of our own individual research, and we know that what we need to address. And that's what Healthy CUNY is trying to do. We're trying to put into place um, interventions across CUNY campuses to really support our students in the way they need it most. In full disclosure to our listeners, I was very much a proponent of CUNY uh, adopting the recommendations that were in that report. And I think, well, from my experience, I've always felt that college persistence, academic persistence should be looked at holistically and that these variables that that the research was evaluating was something that was left out of the conversation. So subsequent to that report being published, can you talk about what the institutional response has been to the findings? Has there Are people just paying lip service to supporting it? Or is there really an effort to understand and and um, incorporate and institutionalize the recommendations that <laughs> yeah. are in it? I mean, I, I think that's an interesting question that I can't really answer. It seems like there's real interest. And, <laughs> and CUNY is a huge bureaucracy of a lot of tape to find your way around. And that's... Um, I mean, it's it's a pro and a con of CUNY that we're so big and that we serve over half a million students. I mean, that's amazing. And that means that the levels of bureaucracy when trying to implement or do anything are multifaceted and <laughs> several layers. So I I feel like there is support and I feel like there is a potential for a lot of implementation, and it's taking a long time. I mean, I see this as analogous to the challenges that New York City or all all public school teachers face, right, Mm -hmm. especially in urban areas where the intersection of poverty and racism and, of course, food and income insecurity, right, have on the uh, ability for children to really be present and, and learn. And those individuals have been historically public school teachers resistant of their role as having to be the social worker. And of course, they're very much active in in the academic uh, growth of students, but not so much the social emotional, or at least that's been subordinated mm-hmm. to the academic role. I'm wondering if you think that that's how we can address it 
if there's this gap in the people who are actually serving the students, if their roles are so specialized, how can we bring in other people who can meet the gaps or how can we change the system or as part of what your research is about is how can we change behavior? Mm. Yeah. I mean, I think that there's a lot of infrastructure that we can work to change that might be the best way to start. Like some of the what I'll call environmental changes. Um, And that includes things like policies and that includes the actual kind of space for things to happen, like physical space. I mean, just um, if you want uh, a place where someone can interact with a young person and talk to them about their needs, like you need to have a private room. Like, I mean, there's all these environmental and kind of logistical things that I think though having a lot of those met could make a lot more things possible. Um, and, and to be clear, that doesn't exist currently for at least CUNY <laughs> students, right? Yeah, so yeah. advisors are, are already, the ratio of advisors to students is very high mm-hmm. and, and space is, um, obviously negligible. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Okay. So I think there's just, yeah, I think there's a lot of things, but, um, the, the infrastructure has to support it. That's the first thing. And, um, Otherwise, you're kind of constantly swimming upstream and trying to uh, change things if you don't have infrastructure and the kind of um, top-down support for that in a way. Mm. And um, what about in terms of your research on sexual agency, which is a subset of that, What what can you describe mm-hmm. or define what sexual agency is and what your uh, assumptions and goals are with the research? Yeah. So sexual agency is a construct I've really developed, which I call the short definition is the ability to communicate and negotiate about sex while having empathy for a partner's wants and needs. So I've developed a measure that we can use to assess sexual agency in young people, um, where we have several questions that kind of look at their skills around some of these issues and their understanding of some of these things. And um, the reason that I think sexual agency is so important as a construct is that it is a positive outcome of sexuality that we can look at instead of always trying to prevent negative outcomes in sexuality and sexual health. And I believe that high sexual agency is tied to lower negative health outcomes as well. So I think that if a young person has high sexual agency, they're more likely to have lower levels of STIs and unintended pregnancies. So um, I think that besides being happier, they will be healthier. And so that's why it's so important to me as a construct. And I also think that a community with high level of sexual agency would have lower levels of sexual assault. So when you describe empathy for partners' wants and needs, um, I think I missed the definition. Did did that include (laughs) one's own wants and needs as well? Yeah, so it's the ability to communicate and negotiate about your wants and needs while having empathy for that partner. I see, okay. Mm -hmm. And if if it's one-sided, if you're able to communicate your needs, but you don't have empathy for the others, does, does that, that's that not just low, high that, sexual agency. It's just, it's just lower on the spectrum. <laughs> yeah. Got it. Okay. Yeah. yeah. I mean, um, I wouldn't, I wouldn't consider that a healthy level of sexual agency at all. Um, and I think that 
real communication and negotiation, that's always what we mean. Um, but a lot of times that isn't kind of taken into account in, in my opinion, in, uh, the operization. Uh, what's the word I want to say? Operationalization. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's a hard one. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> of when you, provide the sexual agency assessment, do you include other questions that assess the relative balance of meeting each other's needs in the relationship? Yeah, I mean, every study where I'm looking at sexual agency is totally different. So every study has different things that we're measuring and what we're kind of trying to assess and understand. And specifically, I'm not measuring sexual agency within relationships. I'm measuring it within individuals. And uh, individuals would then might have uh, one partner for part of a study, like longitudinal studies that we do over time, um, and then other partners at other times. And so it's about um, their agency and their these skill levels that they have within any of these relationships. And it might be lower at different times with different people. Um, so those are things that we're looking at. We're looking at how peer networks, both online and offline, impact the development of sexual agency over time. I'm looking at sexual agency in various groups of young people, including homeless and unstably housed young people and how that might look different for them. I'm looking at how sexual agency is related to consent literacy and the ability to really negotiate and understand what consent is and what it isn't. So I think, I think yeah, there's a, a lot of future for development of this field. If anybody wants to study sexual agency, come talk to me. <laughs> I'm just curious if any of your studies have come to a conclusion where you have findings that you can share, because my, my initial thought is if you're, uh, if you have a longitudinal study and someone's self-assessment of their sexual agency changes over time. Um, Also, if it's um, exclusive from their ability to self-advocate in other ways and, you know, their lives, how does that impact the results, for example? Mm -hmm. You know, because if you're, I think from at least anecdotally from my, my own community, people might be more willing to be um, advocating in a less serious, casual sexual relationship than in a mutually, Mm -hmm you know, fulfilling long-term relationship because they're they're having other things that they need to negotiate in their relationship, emotional and psychological needs. So let me just say that all of my research is with adolescents, mm-hmm. very young people. Mm-hmm. So I think that the relationships at those ages are maybe different than what you're thinking about. I do think there are long-term relationships, um, but the definition of a long-term relationship at 16 and at 36 are very different (laughs) and kind of the expectations that surround that as well. So um, I think that what you're saying is true. And I think in young people, we are seeing a development in sexual agency over time, um, which we would expect, but maybe not necessarily so dependent upon relationships or length of. Okay. And I'm really also curious about the way sexual agency intersects with consent, which mm, obviously, yeah. because it might be high in one area, but then low in another and, yeah. and exercising the ability to. And what what about consent, actually? What, what are your thoughts about how enough is enough has come into play? Has it made a difference? Has it made a dent in New York State? <laughs> I mean, I think enough is enough is great. And... Uh, the kind of regulations that go along with it mean that there are educational 
activities that are happening on college campuses. Um, but I think that people are, universities are kind of meeting the bare minimums of what they need to do. And that isn't really the spirit of enough is enough. That is the uh, kind of, okay, we're doing it because we have to do it. And um, I think that we need a lot more proactive uh, primary prevention around sexual assault on college campuses. And that isn't happening in most places. Well, CUNY on its website actually has a sexual violence campus climate survey. And in it, the survey from 2018 covered about 115,000 students which I think is amazing, around their experiences with regard to sexual assault, sexual harassment, and intimate partner violence. Yeah, I think that that was the original sample, but um, about thirteen to 14,000 people actually completed that survey, which is still a lot of people. <laughs> yeah, and so in looking at the results of that survey, I was really struck by the degree to which First of all, students who had self-identified as being in an intimate partner violence relationship had their academic studies interrupted by the Mm -hmm. relationship. So, for example, their former or current partner uh, made physical threats to them and potentially um, engaged in physical acts of violence against them, as well as intimidation as a result of their going to school. And it interrupted their ability to study, their ability to um, be able to hand in assignments on time. They missed class. And 7% of them actually reported that the IPV caused them to leave school. I felt like that number was actually probably understated, Mm -hmm. um, not knowing what the definition of IPV was that was given to these students, uh, Mm -hmm. if they even were able to identify that those were you know, it was a relevant situation um, to describe their own relationship. I'm wondering if you've had heard anything about this survey and can give some context to some of these answers. Um, I didn't feel very surprised by the data. I think that intimate partner violence is very common, more common than most of us admit. And I think that Um, having some data about the number of our students that are experiencing it is very helpful. Um, I think that that really builds a stronger case for us to say this is something that we need to address. And and I think it's something that we need to much more openly talk about with our students as what to do, how to identify this, how to um, help a friend that you can identify as going through this. And um, I think... that we need to, I mean, I think we need to do way more than we're doing. That's, do you have any suggestions on a university setting, what faculty can do, what staff can do? Obviously, everybody gets sexual harassment training, which I don't know how long it is these days, but it, I think the last time I took it, I think it was an hour online mm-hmm. <laughs> and there was no in-person requirement. There's no need or opportunity to engage in case scenarios, et cetera, um, to really help you know, build upon that that training, and certainly it wasn't something that was ongoing. Yeah. Um, so how do professors and people on a college campus become 
you know, fluent in, in identifying student needs around these issues. I kind of feel like, I feel, I feel a little, I guess, uh, frustrated with university systems kind of in trying to think about solutions to that. I feel like the most practical thing that I could say is that students, when they start any course of higher education, should find professors that they like and trust and start going to their office hours as soon as possible. And what what that does is allow for um, uh, professors to really get to know their students personally and to have some level of personal interaction with them and to understand their lives. And then it's those professors that have a relationship with a student that are able to actually direct them through the system and help them when these needs are actually brought up and discussed. And my personal experience, um, I've had a lot of students come to me with various issues in their lives that they didn't feel like they could tell anybody else and they needed assistance with and didn't know where to go. And I think that what allowed them to do that was my reception of that, but then also that kind of relationship that they have built by coming in and getting to know me. And so the most practical thing I would say is, as a student starting any um, higher education program is talk to your professors, get to know them, go into their office. And then that is a, that's a real strong network of um, the university that you're tapping into. And you also address this issue through your podcast, the sex rap, right? Mm. So do you actively let your students know that this resource is available? (laughs) Yeah. yeah, Okay, great. Um, I talk about the sex rap all the time. (laughs) (laughs) Um, so tell us about when, how did it start? And uh, you have a co-host mm-hmm, as well. Yeah. yeah. Who, who, whose sure, idea sure. was it? Um, so we started it a little over two years ago and it was about two and a half years ago that I just, I, I get frustrated with things quite often. And then I just try to think of a new, totally crazy workaround. So um, I was feeling very frustrated with the state of sex ed in America and in most countries around the world. And um, and I just felt like, how are we ever going to get really high-quality trained sexuality experts in every school all the time <laughs> to be able to really uh, educate and... Um, and to like have a sex positive scientific uh, approach to sexuality. And then I thought, oh, wait, we're not. <laughs> so let me just do something totally different that uh, circumvents that. So that's why I decided to uh, start the sex rap. And I approached Andrew um Andrew Porter at the University of Miami. He and I did our PhDs together at Penn State. That's how we knew each other. And we both worked with the same supervisor and we both uh, taught the sexuality classes together. And he he was my TA when I was teaching. I was a couple of years ahead of him in the program. And, uh, and we had always worked well together and been friends. And um, so when I had this idea of wanting to start this podcast, I was living in the U.S. at the time but I had gone back to Sydney for some research and I was on a run 
and Sydney when I had this idea and I Skyped Andrew and I was like, Andrew, we have to do this and you have to do it with me. Like you would be the perfect person to do this with me. And he was like, what? Wait, where are you? And I thought you lived in New York now. What are you, what? And I'm like, no, I just, I just had to tell you right now because I'm so excited about this. And, um, and he kind of reluctantly agreed at first. Uh, he was anxious about the amount of time and <laughs> work we would have to put into this. But in December 2016, we recorded our first episode and figured out how to get it uploaded and <laughs> into the right places on the internet. Uh, and then we just kept doing it. And uh, we became part of a network and we've um, grown so much. And we now have a lab of students at the University of Miami of undergrads that support all of our social media um, and really help that grow and help our audience grow and um, working with us to understand how podcasts can be a really effective means of health education. And um and it's, it's amazing because we know that we are able to reach young people in all of these places that don't have any sex ed or high quality sex ed. We can see the data from, you know, all of these states that don't even have any potential for quality sex ed um, at this time. And we, and we have listeners all, in all of these places. And so we know we're reaching uh, the people that we wanted to reach. And um, it's, sex education straight into your ears without any shame or embarrassment. Nobody has to know. And it's directly questions that young people want answered. Every episode is a question, um, one question we answer for 20 to 30 minutes. And we get all of our questions from young people. And I mean, it's it's just, you know, tackling the problem straight head on instead of trying to figure out all of these <laughs> logistical issues that would need to change. Um and yeah, it's freely available, and that is really important to us. Have you heard from educators in the country as to whether they've incorporated it into their classrooms at all? Yeah, so we've presented um, at some conferences, and so we've got a lot of sex educators on board as well. And we're actually presenting in a few weeks um, at a conference where we will be giving them lesson plans uh, directly, showing them how to use the podcast in That's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> Is this a high school level or college level? Um, high school level. Okay. Yeah. And, and our podcast is appropriate for anyone really 13, 14 and up, meaning we're, we're using scientific information and language, but um, making sure that people at that age could understand it and explaining things that um, might be higher level concepts. But it's also appropriate for people in their 40s, 50s, <laughs> you know, and up, mm -hmm, like mm -hmm. for any age. Mm -hmm. And I have a lot of friends uh, that are in their 20s and 30s that listen to it. Um, my parents listen to it and learn things and then come ask me about wow. it. Wow. Yeah. I mean, it's... Um, <laughs> So, so I would say, like, it's directed at young people, but it's a, it's for everybody. Uh huh. And you said that the, by the way, I love the format where you ask a question, uh, and you focus on that. Are, are they the questions exclusively coming from um, listeners, or some of them you're coming up with on your own? Sometimes we take a listener question and then kind of adapt it a little bit. Um, so, like, it might be a very long personal question, and we'll pick a more generalized question out of it that we can talk a little bit more about. Um, but all of the questions, we also have 
Um, we had a base level of questions generated from undergrads at the University of Miami. And so that's like where our first bunch came from. And then we've been rolling ever since. <laughs> Can you tell us which episodes or the topics that have been uh, most popular and the <laughs> ones that have gotten the most pushback or challenge, if at all? Mm. I, I don't want to say this out loud, but we haven't had any real challenge <laughs> yet. Great. Um, but uh, the most popular episodes are any episode that has the word sex in the title. <laughs> um, I mean, we can we can see that people will be searching for things and then find our podcast. And so sex is the most commonly searched word on the internet. Um, and anything related to sex is always Googled or searched in whatever search engine you're using. So those are our most popular episodes. <laughs> And, and what about, since we talked about consent mm. earlier, how popular are those? Is that, I'm, I'm just wondering mm. if people are, you know, unconsciously trying to avoid that topic or yeah. if they're engaged. Our regular listeners listen to all of our episodes and there's probably a couple thousand, I think, of those. And then there's this uh, other population of listeners that um, only like stumbles upon an episode or is directed to an episode or something through a search engine. And so I would say that these other topics, the more kind of serious topics, uh, definitely don't get as many listens. But I, th- I think, th- I don't think that's that people are avoiding it. I think it's the, um, the regulars are listening to it and we're not getting the extra listens. That's my hypothesis anyway. <laughs> okay. And you've been very candid about being the first person in New York City who pressed charges using the New York City revenge porn law. Mm. And then just yesterday, actually, the New York New York State passed the revenge porn law. Um, can you tell us how effective New York City's is and what do you think about New York State's? Like a lot of these laws you know, take time, obviously, mm. to really have any teeth. Yeah. Um, New York City's law is okay. There are better laws around the country. In my case, it wasn't hard to meet the uh, qualifications of the New York City law, but for some people, it could be because it has a clause about um, emotional harm, and so intentional emotional harm on the um, part of the abuser. And so um, some instances of revenge porn, it might be hard to show that. So that's a reason that the New York City law isn't as strong, but... In my case, that wasn't difficult to show. So so I think that there definitely are stronger ones. And I'm very grateful that New York City has one. And I'm grateful that New York City had one before New York State did because New York State has been way behind in that, actually. There's only eight other states in the U.S. that do not have revenge porn laws at this point. So New York State was very far behind, and some have had those laws up to 10 years or so now. So um, it has taken quite a long time, um, but I'm very proud that New York has finally uh, voted to pass that. And I'm part of the New York City Cyber Sexual Abuse Task Force. And um, there are some amazing people on that task force who have been working with legislators and actually um, really advocating for some changes. And so they um, were able to pull a few of those changes through. And so the New York State bill is one that we uh, feel pretty good about. So how does that work if you're in New York City, if the state law is stronger and has doesn't have that emotional harm requirement? Can we use that law? As I mean, New York City I'm, citizens? I'm not a lawyer. 
Uh, so I don't understand anything about this until a lawyer tells me. Okay. Um, but and and this will only be an issue once this is all put into effect, right? So um, as of now, people would have to use New York City still, and then I think then that will be up for discussion once it's actually an issue. <laughs> okay. Well. This is a great segue into our final set of questions, the Engendered Questionnaire, which I've adapted from Inside the Actor's Studio. First question, what is at stake in the struggle to end gender-based violence and oppression? Um, we have to be comfortable with being uncomfortable. We have to be able to be vulnerable and open up and have real conversations with each other. And... Um, for a lot of people, that's a lot at stake to to open up to that and to want to explore these issues of gender and of male privilege in our society. What gives you hope? Um, a lot of things give me hope. I'm kind of eternally hopeful. Um, I think, you know, seeing strong, powerful women in or trans people in any station in life <laughs> gives me hope. I think seeing um, people that identify as cisgender males uh, wanting to have discussions and to explore issues of toxic masculinity and start to heal that parts of themselves gives me hope. Um, I have some friends doing work like that, and it just like it makes me feel so grateful to know them and to see them wanting to explore that. So, yeah, I feel I feel a lot of hope. I think that there's always hope. <laughs> and the final question, uh, what can we do more of, less of, start or stop to end gender-based violence and oppression? <laughs> that's, that's, well, okay, how can we solve the world? Great. Uh, <laughs> Um, I mean, personally, all, all of my work is, you know, really related to that. I'm so, um, dedicated to doing this work personally and advocating in my life with the revenge porn stuff and with, uh, getting this, getting high quality scientific, um, information out to young people through the sex trap and on all the research that I'm looking at sexual agency and how we can like really facilitate this and um, as young people are developing like that it's all that I put my energy into and I guess one of the main things we always talk about on our podcast is um, the answer is always communication we, that's like any question we're like oh talk about it there we go we're done <laughs> like that, that's the answer and I think talking about issues of gender-based violence talking about sexual assaults, talking about cyber sexual assaults, being very open and having conversations with people is what we have to do. And uh, so I think that I would like encourage everybody to try to have at least one difficult conversation this week. I think that's a great first step. Thank you very much, Dr. Cooper. Thanks for listening to this episode of Engendered. The show is sponsored by Can Do It Q&A, a peer-based knowledge platform that connects social service providers in advice, community, and learning. You can join Can Do It Q&A for free at qna.kanduit.com. I'd love to get your feedback and hear any questions or suggestions you may have for the show. 
please email us at engenderedpodcast at gmail.com with your questions. 